Uh, you'll find it on page 501 of the Bibles in your pews if you'd like to read along. Uh, Psalm 133. It's on page 501. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord ordained his blessing, life forevermore. Our second reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's on page 961 of those Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 12. But we appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labour among you, and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient with all of them. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do this. Beloved, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I solemnly command you by the Lord that this letter be read to all of them. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. To uh, many ears, the word peace primarily means the absence of hostilities. Uh, it may be that that's pretty much the best that we can hope for between countries, uh, as, for example, in the infamous declaration by Neville Chamberlain on September 30th, 1938, uh, that the recently signed uh, pact made for, quote, peace in our time. Of course, if you know your history, you'll know that that was just months before he was proved so tragically wrong and Second World War broke out. Uh, actually, if we're honest, the absence of hostilities can be a fairly ambitious target uh, for many relationships, too many relationships and families and workplaces. But for those with biblically trained ears, peace is a far richer concept than the mere absence of hostilities. The Old Testament has a special word for peace. It's the word Shalom. Uh, it's a beautiful thing, this idea in the Bible of shalom. Uh, here's how one author put it. Shalom is the webbing together of God and humans and all creation in justice and fulfillment and delight. Shalom means universal flourishing and wholeness. It's a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, 
a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and saviour opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he takes delight. And this author concludes, Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Uh, more poetically, the great second century theologian Irenaeus uh, described Shalom like this. He said, um, the days will come in which vines shall grow, each having 10,000 branches, and in each branch 10,000 twigs, and in each true twig 10,000 shoots, and in each one of the shoots 10,000 clusters, and on every one of the clusters 10,000 grapes, and every grape when pressed will give a 1,000 litres of wine. And when any of the saints shall lay hold of a cluster, another shall cry out, I am a better cluster. Take me. Bless the Lord through me. I did the math. That's a one with 23 zeros after it, litres of wine per vine, which is a lot of shalom right there. It's a beautiful concept, this rich concept of shalom, peace. It's not, therefore, accidental or unimportant that Jesus says, as some of his last words, shalom, I leave with you. Peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. And after his resurrection, Jesus says again and again, shalom be with you. Peace be with you. In other words, the community that Jesus is creating by his death and resurrection is the peace community. The shalom community, a community that in its relationships with one another is meant to be just something of a foretaste of the great shalom that God is ultimately going to work in the world in the age to come. And I take it that's why the peaceableness of Christians is not a side issue for the Apostle Paul either. Uh, Paul is drawing to a close what he has in mind to say to this young church that under God he planted just a few weeks prior to writing. Remember, it's a very young church, maybe a month, maybe two months old. And just like Jesus, his final instruction concerns their peace. Verse 13, he says, Be at peace among yourselves. And that brief instruction there in verse 13 functions as the hinge between the two topics that he addresses either side of it in verse 12 and then in verses 14 and on. And to underline that this is the focus of his interest, this kind of wishing and blessing and urging towards peace, he describes the living and true God to whom they've turned from idols to worship as the God of peace. He's described as the God of Shalom, whose will for his people is to exhibit that Shalom, which is the essence of his own character and purpose. And Paul is aware that two things need to be in place in order for a community to be at peace among themselves. Uh, first, what's needed is uh, the proper exercise and the proper reception of the particular ministry of leadership. And second, what's needed is a proper exercise and a proper reception of the general ministry of encouragement. And so we're going to look at both of those things that the Apostle says, and then finally we'll ask what, it, uh, need, what we need to have in place in order for those things to happen.
So first then, peace and the particular ministry of leadership. If it's true that uh, nature abhors a vacuum, then that is nowhere more true than in relation to the emergence of leadership in any community of people. It's not so much that communities need leadership, although that's true, rather it's that there will, by necessity of nature, be leadership in every community. It's just how things are, actually. And the, the question is whether it's an informal leadership or a formal leadership. And the danger when leadership is entirely informal is that it tends far more directly towards tyranny because there's neither due process nor accountability. And what that means is that Christian communities have always had what I'm going to call ordained leadership. Ordained leadership. Sometimes that leadership is regional uh, for those that want to chase this through, I think you see something like that in uh, Paul's letter to his young friend Titus in that book. There's just a few on in, from 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament, Titus chapter 1 uh, and verse 5. Paul instructs Titus, uh, whom he has left in Crete, on the island of Crete, uh, in part for this very purpose, uh, to appoint elders in each of the churches in each of the different towns on Crete. And the word for appoint there that the apostle uses is in the same word group as the word translated here, have charge of you. And, and I presume that the ministry of leadership that each one of those elders in the different churches all around the island of Crete, that their ministry of eldership or leadership would be recognized by the other churches as well, not just by their own church, since Titus was overseeing them all. What you have, in other words, is a system of leadership appointment very similar to what we see in the formal ordination processes of a denomination. That's why denominations do it like that. So there's ordination which is regional. But then on the other hand, I think sometimes the ordination is what you'd call local. Uh, it's within a church. It's recognised and received by that church, not necessarily beyond that church to other churches, but it's leaders that have been appointed within the context of a church. But either way, biblical Christian communities have always had ordained leadership in one form or another, and actually most often in both. There are multiple forms of leadership in every community. Um, what we here in CCIW call different levels of leadership, uh, to all of which this teaching of the apostle applies. And in fact, the fellowship group leaders, one form of crucial, local, ordained pastoral leadership, that, that's what that is, if you want to put it into this category that we're talking about, the fellowship group leaders today met. We met this afternoon to get better at being fellowship group leaders, to develop our skills, to hone um, our abilities, and to prepare for a special series that's coming up. And the brand new church plant in Thessalonica, this is really interesting, isn't it, is no exception to this. They're just a month or two old. And already there's leaders. And Paul's point here is that the proper exercise and the proper reception of leadership is critical for a community to become more and more characterised by shalom. And two things are needed for leadership to work at its peace-promoting best. Uh, first, the leaders themselves need to fulfil their role maximally. You see how Paul describes their task 
uh, in verse 12. It's one of labor. Uh, the word that's used here is actually a, a pretty intense word. Uh, literally, you translate it something like, exert themselves till they're dripping with sweat. That's what leaders are supposed to do. Really work hard. Uh, at the same time, it's not just work, working hard. Uh, this ministry, this role of leadership is one of having charge. Uh, more literally, it means uh, standing before, both in the sense of being out in front of a community, in providing direction and oversight, as well as standing before in the sense of being an example. And notice the particular ministry of standing before, which is the ministry of admonishment. Uh, a very ordinary English translation for admonishment is, tell people what to do. Tell them off. Instruct them. If the how of leadership is to be hard work and example, the content is instruction. That's what Christian leaders do in Christian communities. And the sense here of instruction is both in belief and in behaviour. It's to teach the scriptures as the word and will of God for his people and then to personally and pastorally engage with people to live out that word and will. To more and more repent from their heart when they find that they're not acting in line with that word and will. Listen how, to how the Anglican ordination service puts it. Part of uh, the service is this charge, this sort of go do this sort of moment between the bishop and ministers. And uh, the words, uh, part of some of the words read are these. Consider within yourselves the purpose of your ministry to the children of God. And see that you never cease your labour, your care, your diligence, until you have done all that lies in you according to your bounden duty. To bring all such as are or will be committed to your care, to that understanding in the faith and knowledge of God, and to that maturity in Christ, which leaves no place among you for error in religion or viciousness in life. It's such a lovely kind of way of describing, of, of setting, sending out a, a group of young, uh, typically, uh, ordination uh, candidates to be involved in the ministry of leadership. Teach people, instruct people, not, not just in theory but in practice as well, not just in ideas and truth but in actual living as well and, and bring them to that understanding in faith and the knowledge of God and to that maturity in Christ which leaves no place it's like it's sort of it's it just crowds out it pushes out all error in religion or viciousness in life I love that no place for that sort of nonsense here and then one of the questions the uh, ordination candidates have to answer is Will you maintain and promote to the best of your ability quietness, peace and love among all Christian people, especially among those who are committed to your care? Captures pretty well, I think, what the Apostle is saying here. Uh, note one other thing, uh, which is in our passage and it's also reflected in that ordination service. Uh, this leadership, this having charge, is very specifically, the Apostle makes sure we hear, in the Lord. It's in the Lord. They're over you, 
in the Lord, is what the Apostle says. What that means is that it's not done in oneself. Leadership is not exercised in the Christian community because any one person is more important or more valuable than any other. Leadership in the Christian community is only ever done in the Lord, in his name. And that means two things. It means that it can never be exercised, it must never be exercised in a way that's contrary to the Lord. It's his ministry. And at the same time, it means it can never be done in a way that betrays the Lord. A minister's not at liberty to permit something that the Lord would not permit. Ah, look, it doesn't matter. It's okay, I mean, if you love each other. No. No, it's in the Lord. There's no freedom for ministers to excuse what Jesus doesn't excuse. And and likewise, there's no freedom for ministers to prohibit something that Jesus wouldn't stop. Ministry in a Christian context is always a derived leadership and it must always stay in line with its Lord. So that leadership in the Lord means that the people leaders lead are never their own people. I I hate it when ministers talk about my people. They're not my people. They're servants of another. And that lordly ownership must always be respected. Or as the ordination service puts it, ministry is always to someone else's children. Did you see that? To the children of God. So on the one hand, leaders are to fulfil their role maximally. At the same time, for leadership to work the way it's meant to, to produce this sort of peace, the shalom in a Christian community like it's designed to, it needs to be maximally received. Only secondarily is Paul describing what leaders are meant to do. Most of his focus is on how the members of the Thessalonian church are supposed to respond to those leaders. And notice what it says, uh, that is to respect them and esteem them very highly in love. Now, of course, this rankles with us a little bit. We're Australians, after all. You know, if there's one thing we know about poppies, especially when they're tall, is that what you do to them is you chop them off at the knees and then you chop them off at the knees now and you just bring them right down to size. That's what we do to leaders. We don't like this whole respect and esteem, let alone esteem very highly, I mean, for goodness sake. Mind you, we're not quite as committed to that point of view as we might think. A friend of mine is fond of saying that pretty much everyone is a Democrat up and a dictator down. Up, with people over us in authority, we're very keen to remind them that this is a democratic society and that authority belongs to the people. But you wait till your friends become prefects at school. They turn into total fascists. They wander around demanding, oh yes, you'd now do your shoes up and wear your tie and all this sort of stuff. And, And very, very clear that leadership should be respected when I'm the leader. So we're not that committed to the tall poppy principle, only when we're not the tall poppy. This is where the fact that leadership in the Christian community is exercised in the Lord really matters. As you hear this command to respect and esteem them very highly in love. Because although I think this instruction can't be completely removed from the person of the leader themselves, respect and esteem here are not abstractions from the person. At the same time, this respect and esteem is about more than the person. 
There is what you might call the office, or, or even more than office, it's the in the lordness of the person. Uh, later on, when the Apostle Paul is talking to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, uh, he says this to them, this is in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says, keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. Notice that it's exactly the same balance that we have here. Leaders, the Apostle Paul says, know that those in your care belong to God and not to you. That they're obtained with the blood of his own son, that's how much he values them, so don't you dare damage them. And at the same time, if, if you really believe what the Apostle says here, if, if it's true that God's actually involved in the life of his church, which doesn't seem such a stretch after all, does it? If it really is the case that in and through whatever system of ordination they had back then, that was in fact the Holy Spirit being the one who made them overseers, then respecting those leaders and esteeming them very highly in love, at least for the Spirit's sake, respecting the Spirit's work makes good sense. And so I don't think we need to struggle quite as much with this instruction as we might think. One final thing to say, uh, what this esteem and respect mostly consists in is not thinking that the leader is great, but receiving the leader's ministry and thinking that Jesus is great. Not following the leader but responding to the leader in following Jesus. The thing about true leadership, real leadership, is that it's never, it's never about the leader. It's about the Lord who leader and member together are all seeking to follow. Well, let me say something uh, personally here. Uh, you may have noticed that so far I've been playing a pretty straight bat in dealing with this passage. It's been very, very just down the line, just taking it apart bit by bit, making sure we understand it. Uh, as you can imagine, I've been mulling on this all week, wondering how to speak about a passage from Scripture which, to some degree, speaks about me. Uh, but the truth is, it says what it says, even if that turns out to be just a little bit culturally or even personally awkward, and it's my job to get out of the way of the text and to give it full voice, not to put myself in the way of it and to trip it up. But at the same time, I do want to say something from my own heart, which is this. Uh, I know lots of ministers who don't really like their jobs very much at all. Uh, they don't even like the congregations they serve very much. I hear so many stories, way too many stories, about ministers who hurt congregations and congregations who hurt ministers where the kind of relationship that is on view here, the kind of leadership that's to be exercised that Paul describes here and in the ordination service, where that kind of leadership has ground to a halt in a misery of friction, hurt and counter-hurt and conflict. I can, I can tell you some terrible stories. But the truth is, that's not me. Actually, that's never been me at St John's. I absolutely love my job. I love St. John's and I love the people of St. John's. And I'm deeply honoured at the way that leadership here is received. 
and experience your respect and esteem in the absolutely best possible way. Namely, that kind of shoulder-to-shoulder striving together in the pursuit of holiness and the honour and glory of the Lord. Paul casts a vision here for the role of leadership as a peace-promoting possibility. And I want to say, it seems to me that it's real and true in our community here. It works. It matters. But there's a second thing that the Apostle says. There's not just the particular ministry of leadership and how it contributes to the peace of a Christian community. There's the general ministry of encouragement, which is equally crucial to the shalom of the church. So point two. Uh, There are all sorts of ways that the shalom of a Christian community can be disrupted. And Paul is aware of the need both to recognise those ways and to respond to them individually and constructively. And so there are those uh, that can be in the church uh, who are what we have translated here as idlers. Uh, Actually, the term is a little more general than people who sit around doing nothing. Uh, The the term really is uh, disorderly. Uh, That is, people who are are out of line is is the image here. The the, the kind of behaviour that when everyone's going left, they're going right. Or or everyone's going right, they're going left. Whatever's happening, they're just sort of unruly and difficult and they're just doing their own thing and they're not part of the team. And now one way for that general unruliness to manifest itself is to be idle. But, But the issue that the Apostle is talking about here is broader than that. And you can see how this sort of non-conformity, this disorderliness, not not about trivial things, but about things that really matter, that that will disrupt peace. When their convictions are not true to the Bible, when their words are corrosive and tear people down rather than build them up, when the, the patterns of their life are bruising rather than loving, well, that's a disorderly moment. And Paul's pretty clear. It's not only the particular role of the leader to admonish, to to tell off, in other words, to pull back into line, to say, you know, that's not how we do things around here. It's it's not just the particular role of the leader to admonish within the life of the church. It's everyone's general role. To to everyone, the apostle says in verse 14, admonish the unruly. Go, I mean, you do it gently and you do it softly and and you'd be wise about it, but you, you go and pull a person up and you say, you know, that's not how we do it. Uh, when I arrived here uh, many years ago, there was a, a really uh, interesting woman who um, used to kind of run a lot of stuff around the church, and so uh, she always knew when things were wrong, and I'd come through the door at uh, 7.20 in the morning uh, for our service starting, it was early, and as soon as I'd get in the door, she'd start complaining about things that were happening. Andrew, and I'd sort of, you know, I just walked in the door. I mean, I'd only been awake for four minutes, so it was, you know, a bit sort of, and I should complain about this. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. And after all, I thought, this is not healthy. It's not the way things should happen. So I came up with a plan. I was going to admonish her. So here's how I did it. Next time she, uh, I came in the door and she sort of started to uh, rouse on me, and she said, I'd said, I'll call her Elizabeth, okay? I'd said, Good morning, Elizabeth. How are you? She went, oh, sorry. Well, thank you. Good morning. How are you? And then she'd go, 
Now, and she's just, and, and off we go. And so the next Sunday we'd come along and I'd walk in the door and she'd, and I'd say, good morning, how are you? And she would go, oh yes, good morning, how are you? This is an 80-something-year-old woman, you know what? She changed. Now, that was wise admonishment. Because it was saying, you know what? Just grumping on people isn't good enough for how we behave with each other. But you don't just go and tell someone off in a way that is just like your parents told you off. That's not going to work, especially not to someone who's nearly triple your age. Well, maybe double, actually, but uh, you've got to be wise about it. And it was a great moment because she changed. And it's all of our jobs. It's your job. It's your job to admonish the unruly, the disorderly in our life. On the other hand, there are some who might look like they're disorderly and unruly, but actually what's happening is that they're faint-hearted. Um, the, the word here literally is small of soul. This is people who feel like they don't have the resources for the challenges and trials that are in front of them. And for the faint-hearted, what's not needed is admonishment. Have you ever, have you ever been like that? Have you ever been sort of feeling faint-hearted, small of soul, like you're just getting overwhelmed by the, the hills that you've got to climb in life and someone comes along and rouses on you? What does that do? That just grinds you into the dust a little bit more, doesn't it? You go, don't do that. Don't mess that up. No, what, what the faint-hearted need is to be encouraged, the apostle says. Encourage the faint-hearted. Uh, speak that uh, well-spoken word in season. And you can see how failure to encourage the faint-hearted will disrupt the peace, the shalom of a Christian community. They'll just get really isolated. Uh, but the apostle is aware that there's not just the, the unruly or the disorderly in the church life, that there's not just the faint-hearted, there's the weak, that is people who really are going under. And, and Paul says, don't admonish them, don't even just encourage them, he says, help them. Get right in down there in the mess with them, get alongside them, practically help them. It's going to take wisdom, isn't it? For you to have the wisdom to know, is, is this person, is, are they just being a jerk? <clears throat> or maybe they're just faint-hearted? Or, or maybe they're being crushed? How do I know? What, what kind of response should I make? But the one option you don't have is to just back off and say, hey, it's not my problem. Hey, I don't really care. It's not my deal. They're not my friends. That's not how Christian community works, the Apostle says. Not if we're shooting for shalom. Not if we're after real Jesus' peace. Now, Paul's aware that whether um, there's unruliness or faint-heartedness or weakness, there's going to need to be patience. He says, be patient with them all. Christian community is not three strikes and you're out for the simple reason that with Jesus, you're not three strikes and you're out. Jesus is patient with all of us, forgiving not seven times, but 70 times, seven times, and then some. And so we too are to be patient. Uh, by the way, patience doesn't mean let people get away with behaving badly and not saying anything to them. That's not what patience is. That's just gutless. Right? Patience means giving people space when you speak to them to be slow about fixing things up, to repent and to want to fix things up and to try and to fail and to still get it wrong and to be open again to hearing again and to try and to fail. Being very patient with people growing. 
And when that happens, when love in the form of patience rules, there won't be that sort of tragic escalation that so often takes place, the cycle of violence, whether emotional or verbal or relational or physical, where evil is repaid with evil. That terrible cycle of violence, especially in its physical form, where just more evil is piled up on top of another. Instead, there'll be a striving to do good to one another, not evil. And of course, this is a spiritual battle. Uh, This is exactly what spiritual warfare consists in. It's not so much demons and evil spirits and green vomit. It's the temptations and accusations of the evil one that leads to sin and more sin. That's the spiritual warfare that you're in. And the great weapon in the spiritual battle is prayer. And, And so the apostle says, be constantly in prayer. Pray without ceasing for your church. That doesn't mean you're not allowed to sleep. You'll be pleased to know. It means don't ever give up on praying. Don't ever reach a point where you say, you know what, I can't be bothered anymore. I just don't care about her anymore. I don't care about him anymore. I just, I'm, I'm done. No, pray without ceasing. And as you engage with God in any circumstance, you'll know that you can give thanks in all circumstances in your prayers because you know the God who can bring resurrection out of crucifixion. And if you can do that in the case of Jesus, then you can do it even in the case of this situation that you're engaged in. And as you sort of find your heart dwelling on these things, the joy that comes in the Lord will grow in you. It's a beautiful picture of community spiritual life, isn't it? Don't you think that the apostle paints here? On the one hand, there's the particular ministry of leadership, exercised and received with that right balance in the Lord. At the same time, there's this general ministry of encouragement, wisdom in the Christian community, discerning where people are at, knowing the right kind of way to respond, responding to them in their situation, not out of me in my situation. It's not about me and whether I'm afraid or whether I've got time. That's not the issue. This text breathes the exact opposite of consumerism, don't you think? Everyone, according to the Apostle, is a producer of community, not just a consumer of community. Everyone is responsible for how the peace of Jesus Christ is expressed and experienced amongst us here. Everyone brings their wisdom into guarding and promoting the shalom of the body of Christ. And so it's not surprising that Paul closes with a final command of fellowship and a blessing. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, Now, I don't know if you've ever seen Middle Eastern men. Uh, They got no qualms, right? They just, they kiss like there's no tomorrow and and each other and every one of them all together twice on on both cheeks. Uh, we don't so much do the greet one another with a holy kiss, we greet one another with a holy handshake. Uh, and the holy handshake, that's pretty good too. It's not quite as good as the holy kiss. What's, what's at stake in a holy, I mean, I'm talking about holy kissing, right? What's at stake in a holy kiss? Why does the apostle say greet one another with a holy kiss? Because there's one thing you can't be when you're rubbing cheeks with someone else. And that's defensive and hostile and antagonistic. You've opened yourself up right to them. You're right in close with them. 
And Paul's saying there's something about that physical act that expresses the spiritual reality between us. And I guess a handshake's not so bad for Australian men after all, so that's probably okay. And the blessing is therefore the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Uh, This is a lovely picture of shalom. This is a description of the church anticipating in the present that final glorious shalom of the age to come with all that wine. Now, of course, when there are no problems, peace is easy. Uh, It just happens naturally. But we don't live in the age of no problems. We live in the age of problems. Uh, I've got problems. You've got problems. He's got problems. She's got problems. They've got problems. And when you put all of us together in a community, guess what? There's going to be problems. Put spiky people in close proximity to one another and what happens is you get spiked. There's a way to minimise that, of course. Uh, There is a way to minimise that, which is to ensure that the distance between us is sufficiently large to make sure that the ways in which we have to do with one another are sufficiently superficial and stop at the level of mere pleasantries that we never actually get in range of one another. But that's not community. At best, that's a club. Mostly it's just a pretense. Which means that to experience shalom, there will always be a cost. There will always be a price to pay. Both in willingness to receive the various ministries, the particular ministry of leadership and the general ministry of encouragement, and also to exercise those ministries yourself. And the the challenge that the text puts to us as we finish this series in 1 Thessalonians is this. Are you up for paying the price of shalom? Are you up for paying the price of peace? And in answering that question, it's such a gift to us that God is named here the God of peace. That doesn't just mean that he's a God who wants us to live in peace, although that's true. It means he's the God who in himself has paid the price of peace. He's done it. In Jesus Christ, he took into himself all the hostilities that we could throw at him, all the out-of-lineness and unruliness that every one of us has uh, done towards him and towards each other, and he bore it all. He was scourged and he hung, and ultimately he died in utter disruption. Having sweated drops of blood, so far was he thrust from the peace of God. Jesus Christ died without peace, bearing our evil. In fact, think about it. Jesus Christ was repaid evil for good. The exact opposite of of what's supposed to happen, right? And that happened precisely so that we can be repaid good for evil. Precisely so that we can have his eternal peace. And as living in that grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that grace which paid the price of our peace, that means we will have the spiritual capacity to pay in our time and place the small costs that are needed to foster shalom amongst ourselves in all the ordinariness and awkwardness of real Christian community. And as we do that, the apostles' prayer wish for the Thessalonians will be fulfilled amongst us. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely And may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Amen.